Putting on face for others. Not saving face, putting on face. More bullcrap on the dangers of marijuana. And the real-life Mowgli from Jungle Book. Very cool human interest story. Welcome to the Jay Sheldon Show. Happy Saturday. Yes, it is a Saturday, indeed. And we are live on twitch.tv, rumble.com, YouTube, and Facebook Live. Welcome in to our audience across the planet, wherever you may be, and to our podcast listeners. Uh, the audio part of our show, as you know, is a podcast. It's available on any podcast platform just about out there, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Radio Public, it's available on all of them. Just look for The Jay Sheldon Show and give us a subscribe. And uh, it's just that easy. Uh, we have an update on our favorite furry little friend here, but uh, I wanted to say we are in negotiations right now with a new potential sponsor, and I'm very excited. I'm very excited about this. Hopefully, the deal goes through. Pray for me, and uh, we'll see uh, We'll see what happens. But anyway, let's get on over to uh, say hello to our furry friend here. There she is. Miko Update. <laughs> the Miko Update. Yeah, yeah. Miko is... Uh, Hanging out downstairs at the moment. She uh, she didn't get a walk tonight. She did this morning. However, it has it started raining this morning about nine ten o'clock. It rained until around one. We got about an hour or two break. We got some laundry done, and then it started in about three o'clock again. And it has in fact right now it's still raining out there. Uh, there was a small break when we got back from dinner, and uh, so we did get a chance to take her out and let her do her business, but uh, she's uh, she's doing great. As a matter of fact, I'm going to share this half-naked picture with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is uh, Miko and me. We were watching movies on my phone earlier today, so uh, that's our, our favorite little girl and uh, me, and uh, we were laying on the couch uh, and she's she was actually watching. I I don't know. I don't remember what it was we were watching. Probably YouTube videos or maybe the Jay Sheldon show. But uh, that's her, and we love her to death. And we get a lot of emails and PMs and people saying, "How's me? How's Miko doing?" Uh, so there you go. She's doing great and uh, happy. She finally got to go out and t have a walk and do her business. So uh, yeah, she's uh, she's good. Thanks. I. I tried. You know, she's a stinker about coming in the studio when we're live. I, I don't know why. But when we can, we get her in here and we get her on the show. Uh, it's been a while since she actually made a live appearance. Because every time I'm live, for some reason, she knows it. And she will not come in the studio. So I leave the door open specifically in case she wanders in. But so far, no luck. <laughs> All right, a couple of, uh, we're going to get to our main topic tonight, which is uh, public face, private face. We'll do that in a minute. But um, I, we went out to dinner tonight to Manhattan Seafood, 
restaurant, which is not too bad. Uh, hey, time uncertain popping in on the stream. Hello there. Jay Rock and the banana shirt looking good. <laughs> Thank you. This is one of my favorite shirts. It's kind of a silky satiny material. Uh, yeah, rocking the banana shirt tonight. Anyway, so we go to Manhattan Fish House or whatever it's called, and it's one of these idiotic, damned QR code menu places. And so we're trying to decide. We're standing out in front of the place, and I'm looking at the menu. And just down from it, because we're at Subang Parade, which is a little mini mall here in Malaysia, uh, there's a place called Orchid, which is you know, pretty decent food. Okay. Inexpensive. So I'm thinking, well, we want to go here, we want to go there. And then the guy who is waiting to seat us at Manhattan um, is like, have you decided? And, and, and then my other half says, oh, there's a QR code menu. Are you sure? And I'm like, oh, no way, no way. And I'm like, I'm not. And so I said to the guy, do I have to scan the damn QR code? And he said, nah, I'll take your order and give you a menu. Yes, yes, we love it. So we ate there. And even if I had decided that I was, that was it. You made the decision for me when you allowed me to use a menu and give an order to a live human being. <sighs> I'll be back, Manhattan. Thank you. By the way, the food was really good. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, what do Americans really think? There is a new study out, and it is... It's weird. It's weird. The link is in our show notes for this. It's from uh, Axios.com. Great site over there. A lot of good stuff on Axios. Um, the difference between your public opinion and your private opinion. I'll tell you something. I'm in my 60s. I know. I'm an old fart. The older you get, the less you give a crap about what other people think of your opinion or what what you believe. It is what it is. I'm too old for your bullshit, and I don't care. You don't like it? Move along. It happens as you get older. So if you're not an older person, trust me, it will happen. You will get there. And it is so freeing. Um, take a look at some of these uh, numbers here. Uh, and we'll get into the meat of this in a minute, but uh, CEOs should take a stand on controversial social issues. The people they surveyed privately agreed 14%. Publicly, 28%. That is a huge difference. Uh, Alan Yee has liked the stream. Thank you very much. I think it's Alan or Alex. Alex, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, public schools focus too much on racism. This is in the U.S. 33% privately agree with that. But publicly, 43%. 10% more. That is a huge difference. This is the survey. Mask wearing was effective to stop COVID-19. Now, we all know there's no science that says that these surgical and cloth masks do anything, anything. No scientific evidence that they work or they are effective at all. And yet still, 
people all over the place still wearing that stupid face diaper. Uh, take a look at these numbers here. 47% privately said they agree. However, if they were asked that question publicly, it goes up to 59%. Because, you know, you have to put on a good show for the public opinion. It's just, uh, it, the list goes on and on here. Uh, discussing gender identity in public schools is inappropriate for K-3 through children. 53% privately agreed. 63% publicly. 10% more. Unbelievable. The differences in some of these things. It's called self-silencing. People say what they think other people want to hear rather than what they really feel. Skewing our understanding of how Americans really feel about things like abortion, COVID-19 precautions, what children are taught in schools, other hot-button issues. There's a new study out. And the best predictor of private behavior is private opinion. People's actual views are far more likely than their stated views. In other words, what you really believe in your heart of hearts compared to what you say in public. We are misreading what we all think, and it actually causes false polarization, said Todd Rose, co-founder, president of Populous. That's a Massachusetts-based firm that undertook this study. It actually destroys social trust, and it tends to historically make social progress all but impossible. The big picture, people often are more moderate than they will readily admit to when being pulled toward a vocal fringe, whether you're in the left or on the right. In some cases, he said, people reshape their privately held views to conform to what they think their group believes, even if their assessment is inaccurate. The gap between real views and stated views, what you feel in your heart truly and what you say out loud, it can have a generational impact because media amplifies these perceptions and then cue young adults. The generation's illusions tend to become the next generation's private opinions. So they, they did this survey they were given a mix of traditional polling questions and other questions using a list experiment method or item count technique. It provides them with a greater sense of anonymity. Uh, that process allowed researchers to find the gap between what people say versus how they privately really feel. By the numbers on abortion, study found men are much likely, much less likely to privately agree with the idea that the choice to have an abortion should be left solely to the woman and her doctor. 45% agree with that privately. 60%, 15% more, that is huge, would say so publicly. Republicans, they, they broke this out into Democrat, Republican, male, female, age range, all kinds of factors here. Check out the whole article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, it's amazing. Um, Republicans were less likely to privately say Roe v. Wade 
should uh, should be overturned. 51% privately, 64% publicly. One more, and then we'll move on. COVID-19, 44% of women feel wearing masks was effective at stopping COVID-19 spread. But publicly, 63% said they felt that way. Public, when stated publicly. Four times, astonishing, four times as many Democrats say CEOs should take a public stand on social issues. 44% than actually care. 11%. Unbelievable. There is more and more data in here. The study found the biggest disparity was among Hispanic respondents and political independence. On 14 to 25 topics, those groups had double-digit gaps between what they say and what they really actually believe. This is from Axios, and it is absolutely amazing. Sounds kind of dry, but it's not. If you read the article, check it out. It's in our show notes down below, uh, and it's incredible. And the takeaway? Say what you really believe. Say what you really feel. You're not fooling anybody. You're not helping anybody. And as this article says, it becomes a generational issue because the media reports on this misleading is what it is crap. Now, you know, there are things. Oh, do I, does this dress make me look fat? No, dear, the dress doesn't make you look fat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those are the white lies we can live with. But this kind of stuff? Mm-mm-mm. I'm telling you. Take down the wall. Tell people how you really feel. It really is important. I'm not kidding. All right. What else we got? Oh, <laughs> as you know, here in Malaysia, we have this uh, ridiculous uh, drug thing. Now, look, I am not pro-drug in any way, shape, or form. I don't do drugs. I don't believe you should do drugs. Uh I just, no, don't do it. Having said that, I've said before on this show, marijuana is not a drug. They have led you to believe it is and all of the evil things. It's not a gateway drug. That's all bullcrap. Do a search, okay? Read some real studies about it. Anyway, from World of Buzz, this link's in our show notes. This is now reversed because we were doing a story a few streams ago about how... uh, the Malaysian authorities were saying, don't go to Thailand just to go on a marijuana holiday. Uh, And if you do, don't bring any back and don't come back stoned. Well, now we're hearing from Thailand. (laughs) Yeah. The uh, hang on, because I've locked up here. Yeah, I'm right on the edge of this whole thing faulting out. So if I suddenly disappear, you'll know why. The Thai health minister is discouraging tourists. That's not just from Malaysia. Uh, only seeking to consume marijuana. Yes. So we don't welcome those kind of tourists. (laughs) Just months ago, this is in Malaysia, the Ministry of uh, Home Affairs uh, urged Malaysians to refrain from consuming marijuana. uh, While in Thailand, uh, it's still illegal here in Malaysia. Hopefully they'll do something about that soon. 
But anyway, now the Thai health minister, I will never pronounce this name right. I'll give it a try. Anutin Chanviratkul is chiming in on that same sentiment. He discourages tourists from going to Thailand with the only interest of smoking pot. We don't welcome those kind of tourists, he says, when questioned by reporters in regard to foreign tourists and their recreational marijuana use. It comes after new laws were passed in Thailand just recently uh, that decriminalizes cannabis. Yay. Congratulations. Thanks for waking up, Thailand. Um, so, yeah, basically, the uh, despite the now widespread and public use of marijuana in the food and beverage industry there, uh, smoking cannabis in public, note, is still considered illegal and poses a three-month jail sentence as well as fines of up to 25,000 baht. Uh, so while it is legal, you cannot smoke in public. That's interesting. Uh, he did, however, add their country may explore the recreational use of marijuana with a better understanding of cannabis. It might come in the near future. He says, so there you go. I haven't been to Thailand in a long time. Maybe I need to have a trip. Maybe I need to take a holiday to Thailand. Hey, I haven't even had a holiday in a long time. All right. Here's another story we covered a few streams ago. Hang on, coffee break. I told you about in, um, in, um, Kwantan, the, uh, they're basically trying to force people to be patriotic because if you don't fly the flag uh, and it has to be in good condition, you get a fine. I made the point, I'll make it again, that uh, you cannot regulate patriotism. If you have to force people to be patriotic, it doesn't mean crap. And as I said before, I'll take one or two folks who fly that flag who in their heart of hearts do it because they love this country and what that flag represents to them. I'll take one or two of those people compared to a whole block full of businesses with flags in front, and it means squat nothing to any one of those people. But check this out because people are kind of saying, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Kwantan City Council slammed for forcing businesses to fly Jalur Gemilang, that's how we call our flag here in Malaysia, or pay a 500 ringgit fine. Now, at the current exchange rate, 500 ringgit is, you know, about $1.224. It's very cheap. Anyway, it's a lot of money here in Malaysia. The local council is being roasted for burdening the people unnecessarily with summonses. And uh, businesses in Kwantan uh, have been reminded to fly the flag or pay a fine. And the people are kind of pissed off about it. Um, Kwantan City Council Public Corporate Relations Sanction Head, Norkamawati Kamal, said the trend has been happening for the past few years. She was quoted as saying, uh, it happened due to the lack of patriotic spirit among the owners of business premises around the city. 85% of the premises around Kwantan 
have not been decorated or holstered the Jalul Gemilang, the flag, with Merdeka and Malaysia Day celebrations just around the corner. She added businesses have not compiled, uh, complied despite instructions issued long ago, and uh, businesses have until Thursday the 18th, that was two days ago, to fly the flag or face the music, because we're going to force you to be patriotic. It doesn't matter if you have to force people. It doesn't count. Anyway, they will be fined for violating the uh, license conditions. Uh, We heard about that recently. Businesses must ensure the flag and state flags are in good condition. And uh, you get free parking if you have a flag on your car. Very nice. Anyway, the city council even took to social media to voice its grouses, and the people are largely disappointed that the MBK is forcing them to fly the flag and rebuked the latter for boasting that it had put up 5,000 flags. Many exchanged words and tried to reason with the city council, but as usual, they stuck one finger in each of their ears and completely ignored the people who pay their taxes and, you know, basically let the city run. Uh, they said it should be voluntary. Businesses have already done their part paying taxes to the council. Uh, some say they're Quanton taxpayers who always pay on time, but have got nothing in return. The rest of that is in our show notes if you want to read the whole article. Uh, same time, Nettison said people are fed up with the government rather than being unpatriotic. Uh, they love the country, don't like the government. That's all right. You're entitled to that opinion, if that is your opinion. Some believe business communities are, in fact, protesting against useless government policies. It goes on and on. Do check it out. Read the article. It's in our show notes tonight, and uh, it's it's interesting. But like I said, bottom line, you just ain't going to regulate patriotism. Because if you have to force people, it's not real. Remember what I said in the beginning? When we did our first article, what you say privately compared to what you say publicly. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. All right. We have, look, we have, I have the utmost respect for, we call them sanitation workers, whatever, the garbage men, okay? I know, you're not even supposed to say garbage men, but here, I don't believe I have ever seen a garbage woman. So anyway, we'll call them garbage men because that's what we always call them. The garbage men here deal with our crap. They collect our stinky, disgusting garbage, and they do it faithfully. They do a good job. But they don't do the neatest job on the planet. <laughs> I, uh, I go out of my driveway every day and out past the gate, there is God knows what I'm going to find. Lately, it's been face masks, which is disgusting. Used face masks. Chances are they weren't just thrown out the window of a passing car. Chances are, because when the garbage truck goes through, there is always a trail of garbage that goes down the road. People really need to take a bit more time and be a bit more careful. Well, this is from Manus FM. 
Manus means sweet in Malay. Uh, and I don't know this. I assume it's a radio station. But this is really cool. Take a look at this video. And I don't know if this is Malaysia or not. Uh, they put the, the logo on there. says integrity because this is a group of garbage guys who are loading up uh, bags of garbage into the back of the garbage truck. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, go to our video and check it out. It's very cool. One guy has a, a dustbin and a broom, and he is sweeping up all the extra little stuff that's fallen around where the garbage bags are kept. Puts it all in the back of the garbage truck, puts his broom down, and the garbage truck pulls away. And as you can see, Look at that. Look at how it started. All right, never mind. We don't need to see that again. <laughs> let me just let me see if I can reload this, if it'll work or not. I don't know. Uh, yeah, there it goes. Okay. So look at that. Look at all that garbage all over the place, just tossed everywhere, and all these little bits and pieces. But this guy, bless his heart, this one guy is hustling with the bags, pulling them all, loading them up, and this guy with his broom and dustbin is picking up even this guy with the bags is picking up the extra stuff that's fallen around. Look at that. That's integrity. That's being proud of your work, whatever your work might be. That is cool stuff. The link to that video is in our show notes from uh, Manis FM. And uh, I encourage you to not only check it out, but share that on your social media feeds. Because I don't know where that's from. And my Malay is not good enough to read... Uh, it says Japan Tour Team. Maybe it was from Japan. Anyway, uh, incredible. Fantastic. Well, really nice. All right, we got one more to go, and then we're going to get to our book. And this actually kind of caught my eye, mainly because among the many books we've read here, The Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, Little Prince, Winnie the Pooh, we've done all kinds of classic books here. Right now we're in the middle of Sherlock Holmes. However... One of the books that we read was The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, this popped up. It's from allthatsinteresting.com. You may have heard this story before. If not, bear with me. The Short Sad Life of Dina Sanachar, the feral boy who inspired The Jungle Book. And that is him. That's a picture of Dina. Dina Sanajar was raised by wolves, literally raised by wolves, in India's Uttar Pradesh jungle until hunters found him in 1867. They brought him back to an orphanage, and he would later serve as Rudyard Kipling's inspiration for the character of Mowgli. In the Jungle Book. This is a portrait of, uh, of Dina, known as the real-life Mowgli. That picture was taken sometime between 1889 and 1894. Uh, Rudyard Kipling's novel, The Jungle Book, tells the story of Mowgli, a boy who was abandoned by his parents and raised by wolves. And while he was taught the ways of the animal kingdom, he never learned how to interact with another human being. 
Well, Kipling's famous tale, later adapted into several films, of course, by Disney, ends on a rather uplifting message about self-discovery and harmony between human civilization and nature. But very few people know that it was actually based on very tragic, true events. This 19th century Indian man named Dina Sanachar, often called the real-life Mowgli, was raised by wolves and spent the first few years of his life thinking... He was one. When hunters discovered him in a cave, they took him to a nearby orphanage. Missionaries there tried to teach him all the things he had never learned, starting with the basics of walking and talking, because he was walking on all fours like wolves do. However, the gulf between human behavior and animal instinct proved too wide for Dina Sanachar to overcome. The story of the real-life Mowgli did not end the way the Disney version did. Uh, one night, a band of hunters made their way through the jungle. They stumbled upon a clearing, and beyond it lay the entrance of a cave they believed was being guarded by a lone wolf. There is actually another picture of uh, this fellow. They prepped to ambush their unsuspecting prey, but they were stopped in their track when they realized that it wasn't an animal at all. It was a boy, no older than six. He neither approached the men nor answered their questions. Not wanting to leave the boy behind in the unforgiving outskirts of the jungle, the hunters brought him to the orphanage in the city of Agra. He didn't have a name. The missionaries gave him one. They named him Dina Sanajar after the Hindu word for Saturday, the day he arrived. Wow. His behavior resembled that of an animal more than it did a human. He walked on all fours, had difficulty standing on his own two feet. He only ate raw meat and gnawed on bones to sharpen his teeth. There's another shot of him. Uh, the facility with which they get along on four, on Four feet, hands and feet, is surprising, the superintendent of the orphanage said. Once wrote a faraway colleague, before they eat or taste any food, they smell it. And when they don't like the smell, they throw it away. Wow. Communication was nearly impossible for two reasons. He didn't speak the same language as the missionaries. Uh, when he wanted to express himself, he would simply growl or howl the way a wolf does. He also didn't understand any sign language. People who don't speak the same language usually can get some sort of understanding by using their hands. Not, not you know, American sign language stuff, but, you know, just using your hands to gesture. But because wolves, of course, don't have fingers, they don't point, that meant nothing to this guy. Unbelievable. He uh, stayed at the orphanage the more he began to behave like a human. He learned how to stand upright, according to the missionaries, began to dress himself. Some say he even picked up the most human trait of all, smoking cigarettes. Wow. Interesting enough, he was not the only wolf child living at the orphanage at the time. Superintendent Lewis is to be believed. He was joined by two other boys and a girl who were also said to have been raised by wolves. According to one geographer, the orphanage took in so many wolf children over the years, they no longer looked up when another kid was discovered in the jungle. Quite the contrary, it created no more surprise than the delivery of a daily su 
supply of butcher's meat. Crazy. Anyway, the story goes on. It goes in-depth as to uh, Mowgli's or Dina Sanachar's story. And uh, it I'll warn you, though, it has a rather sad ending. So uh, be prepared for that. But the link to this article from allthatsinteresting.com is in our show notes. And I encourage you to, uh, to check it out. It's a, it's a very, very cool article. All right. Uh, yeah, The Jungle Book. We did that, didn't we? It was a fun book, as a matter of fact. Very different from the film, as usually is the case with these books. All right. Uh, Give me one quick second. There we go. A little coffee break. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. And just before we get on to our uh, our adventures of Sherlock Holmes, uh, I want to remind you to... uh, like and subscribe to the show. It really does help a lot. It's totally free, completely free. Just hit that subscribe or like button, wherever it may be. And uh, that's as easy as that. Whether you're on YouTube, rumble.com, Facebook, or twitch.tv, you can hit the uh, subscribe. And of course, our podcast. If you want to check out and add us to your shelf of uh, podcasts that you listen to and download each week, we do literally get hundreds of downloads a week, which is fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. I really, really appreciate it uh, for all those uh, all those downloads we get. And finally, if you want to help support the show, of course, it's the top link in our show notes, our description. You can go to patreon.com slash Sheldon. Relatively inexpensive, and you can help us out a lot over there if you are so inclined. Just a small ask. All right, so... We were in the middle of this strange adventure here uh, about the disappearing wife. And uh, after the Lord related his story, uh, he said, should you be fortunate enough to solve the problem, said the client. And Holmes said, I have solved it. Eh? What was that? I say, I have solved it. Then... Where is my wife? That is a detail which I shall speedily supply. Well, Lord St. Simon shook his head. I'm afraid that it will take wiser heads than yours or mine, he remarked, and bowing in a stately, old-fashioned manner, he departed. It's very good of Lord St. Simon to honor my head by putting it on a level with his own said Sherlock Holmes, laughing. I think I should have a whiskey and soda and a cigar after all this cross-questioning. I had formed my conclusions as to the case before our client even came into the room. My dear Holmes, I have notes of several similar cases, though none, as I remarked before, which were quite as prompt. My whole examination served to turn my conjecture into a certainty. Circumstantial evidence is occasionally very convincing, as when you find a trout in the milk, to quote Thoreau's example. But I've heard all that you've heard, without, however, the knowledge of pre-existing cases, which serves me so well. There was a parallel instance in Aberdeen some years back, and something on very much the same lines at Munich a year after the Franco-Prussian War. It's one of these cases, but, hello, here is Lestrade. Uh, Good afternoon, Lestrade. You'll find an extra tumbler on the sideboard, and there are cigars in the box. 
The official detective was attired in a pea jacket and a cravat, which gave him a decidedly nautical appearance. He carried a black canvas bag in his hand, which a short greeting he seated himself, lit the cigar which he'd been offered. "'What's up, then?' asked Holmes, with a twinkle in his eye. "'You look dissatisfied.' "'And I feel dissatisfied. "'Is this infernal St. Simon marriage case? "'I can make neither head nor tail of the business.' "'Really? You surprise me. "'Who ever heard of such a mixed affair? "'Every clue seems to slip through my fingers, "'and I've been working upon it all day.' "'And very wet it seems to have made you,' said Holmes, laying his hand upon the arm of the pea-jacket. Uh, "'Yes, I've been dragging the serpentine.' "'In heaven's name, what for?' "'Search of the body of Lady St. Simon.' Sherlock Holmes leaned back in his chair and laughed heartily. "'Have you dragged the basin of Trafalgar Square Fountain?' he asked. "'Why? What do you mean?' "'because you have just as good a chance of finding this lady in the one as the other.' "'Lestrade shot an angry glance at my companion. "'I suppose you know all about it,' he snarled. "'Well, I've only just heard the facts, but my mind is made up.' "'Oh, indeed. Then you think that the serpentine plays no part in the matter?' "'I think it very unlikely.' Then perhaps you'll kindly explain how it is that we found this in it. He opened his bag as he spoke and tumbled onto the floor a wedding dress of watered silk, a pair of white satin shoes, and a bride's wreath and veil, all discolored and soaked in water. There, said he, putting a new wedding ring upon the top of the pile, "'There's a little nut for you to crack, Mr. Holmes.' "'Oh, indeed,' said my friend, blowing blue rings into the air. "'You dragged them from the serpentine?' "'No. They were found floating near the margin by a park-keeper. "'They've been identified as her clothes, "'and it seems to me that if the clothes were there, "'the body wouldn't be far off.' And by the same brilliant reasoning, every man's body is to be found in the neighborhood of his wardrobe? And pray, what did you hope to arrive at through this? At some evidence implicating Flora Miller in the disappearance. I'm afraid you're going to find that very difficult. Oh, are you now indeed? cried Lestrade with some bitterness. I am afraid, Holmes, that you are not very practical with your deductions and your inferences. You've made two blunders in as many minutes. The dress does implicate Miss Flora Miller. And how? In the dress is a pocket. In the pocket is a card case. In the card case is a note. And here is the very note. He slapped it down on the table in front of him. Listen to this. You will see me when all is ready. Come at once. F.H.M. Now, my theory all along has been that Lady St. Simon was decoyed away by Flora Miller, and that she, with confederates, no doubt, was responsible for her disappearance. Here, signed with her initials, is the very note which was no doubt quietly slipped into her hand at the door, 
which lured her within their reach. Very good, Lestrade, said Holmes, laughing. You really are very fine indeed. Let me see it. He took up the paper in a listless way, but his attention instantly became riveted, and he gave a little cry of satisfaction. This is indeed important, said he. Ha! You find it so? Extremely so. I congratulate you warmly. Lestrade rose in his triumph and bent his head to look. Why, he shrieked, you're looking at the wrong side. On the contrary, this is the right side. The right side? You are mad. Here's the note written in pencil over here. And over here is what appears to be the fragment of a hotel bill, which interests me deeply. There's nothing in it. I looked at it before, said Lestrade. October 4th, rooms 8, breakfast 2 shillings, cocktail 1 shilling, lunch 2 shillings, glass of sherry. I see nothing in that. Very likely not. It's most important all the same. As to the note, it's important also, or at least the initials are, so I congratulate you again. I've wasted enough time, said Lestrade, rising. I believe in hard work and not sitting by the fire, spinning fine theories. Good day, Mr. Holmes, and we shall see who gets to the bottom of this matter first. He gathered up the garments, thrust them into the bag, and made for the door. Uh, just one hint to you, Lestrade, drawled Holmes, before his rival vanished. I will tell you the true solution to the matter. Lady St. Simon is a myth. There is not, and has never been, any such person. Lestrade looked sadly at my companion. Then he turned to me, tapped his forehead three times, and shook his head solemnly, and hurried away. He'd hardly shut the door behind him when Holmes rose and put on his overcoat. There's something in what the fellow says about outdoor work, he remarked. So I think, Watson, that I must leave you to your papers for a little. It was after five o'clock when Sherlock Holmes left me, but I had no time to be lonely, for within an hour there arrived a confectioner's man with a very large flat box. This he unpacked with the help of a youth whom he had brought with him, and presently, to my very great astonishment, a quite epicurean little cold supper began to be laid out upon our humble lodging-house mahogany. There was a couple of braces of cold woodcock, a pheasant, a pâté de foie gras pie, and a group of ancient and cobwebby bottles— Having laid out all these luxuries, my two visitors vanished away like the genie in the Arabian Nights, with no explanation save that the things had been paid for and they were ordered to this address. Well, just before nine o'clock, Sherlock Holmes stepped briskly into the room. His features were gravely set, but there was a light in his eye which made me think he had not been disappointed in his conclusions. They've laid the supper, then, he said, rubbing his hands. You seem to be expecting company. They've laid for five. Uh, yes, I fancy we may have some company dropping in, said he. I'm surprised that Lord St. Simon has not already arrived. 
I fancy that I hear him step upon the stair now. It was indeed our visitor of the morning who came bustling in, dangling his glasses more viciously than ever, with a very perturbed expression upon his aristocratic features. "'My messenger reached you, then?' said Holmes. "'Yes, and I confess the contents startle me beyond measure. "'Have you good authority for what you say?' "'Oh, the best possible.' Lord St. Simon sank into a chair and passed his hand over his forehead. "'What will the Duke say?' he murmured, "'when he hears that one of his family had been subjected to such humiliation.' It is the purest accident. I cannot allow that there is any humiliation. Ha! You look on these things from another standpoint. I fail to see that anyone is to blame. I can hardly see how the lady could have acted otherwise, though her abrupt method of doing it was undoubtedly to be regretted. Having no mother, she had no one to advise her at such a crisis. It was a slight, sir. A public sight, slight, said Lord St. Simon, tapping his fingers on the table. You must make allowance for this poor girl placed in so unprecedented a position. I will make no allowance. I am very angry indeed, and I have shamefully been used. I think I heard a ring, said Holmes. Yes, there are steps on the landing. If I cannot persuade you to take a lenient view of the matter, Lord St. Simon, I've brought an advocate here who may be more successful. He opened the door and ushered in a lady and a gentleman. Lord St. Simon, said he, allow me to introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. Francis May Moulton, the lady, I think, you've already met. At the sight of these newcomers, our client had sprang from his seat and stood very erect, with his eyes cast down and his hand thrust into the breast of his frock coat, a picture of offended dignity. The lady had taken a quick step forward and had held out her hand to him, but he still refused to raise his eyes. It was as well for his resolution, perhaps, for her pleading face was one which it was hard to resist. "'You're angry, Robert,' said she. "'Well, I guess you have every cause to be.' "'Pray, make no apology to me,' said Lord St. Simon bitterly. "'Oh, yes, I know that I've treated you real bad, that I should have spoken to you before I went, but... I was kind of rattled from the time I saw Frank here, and I, I just didn't know what I was doing or saying. I, I only wonder I didn't fall down and do a faint right there before the altar. Perhaps, Mrs. Moulton, you would make you would like my friend and me to leave the room while you explain the matter. If I may give an opinion, remarked the strange gentleman. We've just had a little too much secrecy over this business already. For my part, I should like all of Europe and America to hear the rights of it. He was a small, wiry, sunburnt man, clean-shaven with a sharp face and an alert manner. Then I'll tell our story right away, said the lady. Frank here and I met in 84 in McGuire's camp near the Rockies, where Pa was working on a claim. We were engaged to each other, Frank and I, but 
Then one day father struck a rich pocket and made a pile, while poor Frank here had a claim that petered out and came to nothing. The richer Pa grew, the poorer was Frank. So at last Pa wouldn't hear of our engagement lasting any longer, and he took me away to Frisco. Frank wouldn't throw up his hand, though, and he followed me there and saw me without Pa knowing anything about it. It would only have made him mad to know, so we just fixed it all up for ourselves. Frank said he would go and make his pile, too, and never came back to claim me until he had as much as Pa. So then I promised to wait for him till the end of time and pledged myself not to marry anyone else while he lived. Why shouldn't he? we be married right away then, said he, and then I'll feel sure of you and I won't claim to be your husband until I come back. Well, we talked it over and we did it right there. And then Frank went off to seek his fortune and I went back to Paul. The next I heard of Frank was that he was in Montana, and he went prospecting in Arizona, and I heard of him from New Mexico. After that came a long newspaper story about how a miner's camp had been attacked by Apache Indians, and there was my Frank's name among the killed. I fainted dead away, and I was very sick for months afterwards. Pa thought I had a decline, took me half to the doctors in Frisco. Not a word of news came for a year or more, and that I never doubted that Frank was really dead. Then Lord St. Simon came to Frisco. We came to London, and a marriage was arranged. And Pa was very pleased, and I felt all the time, though, that no man on this earth would ever take the place in my heart that had been given to my poor Frank. Still, if I married Lord St. Simon, of course, I'd have done my duty by him. We can't command our love, but we can our actions. I went to the altar with him, but the intention was to make him just as good a wife as it was in me to be. But you can imagine what I felt when just as I came to the altar rails, I glanced back and saw Frank standing and looking at me in the first pew. I thought it was a ghost at first, but when I looked again, he was still with a kind of question in his eyes, as if to ask me whether I was glad or sorry to see him. I wonder I didn't drop. I know that everything was turning around, and the words of the clergyman were like the buzz of a bee in my ear. I didn't know what to do. Should I stop the service, make a scene in the church? I glanced at him again, and he seemed to know what I was thinking, for he raised a finger to his lips to tell me to be still. Then I saw him scribble on a piece of paper, and I knew that he was writing me a note. As I passed his pew on the way out, I dropped my bouquet over him, and he slipped the note into my hand, when he returned me on the flowers. It was only a line asking me to join him when he made the sign to me to do so. Of course, I never doubted for a moment that my first duty was now to him, and I determined to do just whatever he might direct. When I got back, I told my maid, who'd known him in California, and had always been his friend. I ordered her to say nothing, but to get a few things packed and my ulster ready. I know I ought to have spoken to Lord St. Simon, but it was dreadfully hard before his mother and all those great people. I just made up my mind to run away and explain afterward. I 
hadn't been at the table ten minutes before I saw Frank out the window on the other side of the road. He beckoned to me and began walking into the park. I slipped out, put on my things, and followed him. Some woman came talking something or other about Lord St. Simon to me, seemed to me from the little I heard as if he had a little secret of his own before marriage also. But I managed to get away from her and soon overtook Frank. We got into a cab together. We drove away to some lodgings he'd taken in Gordon Square. And that was my true wedding after all those years of waiting. Frank had been a prisoner among the Apaches, had escaped, came on to Frisco, found that I'd given him up for dead, and had gone to England. He followed me there, and had come upon me at last on the very morning of my second wedding. I saw it in a paper, explained the American. It gave the name and the church, but not where the lady lived. And we had a talk as to what we should do. Frank was all for the openness, but I was so ashamed of it all, I felt as if I should like to vanish away and never see any of them again. Just send a line to Pa, perhaps, to show him I was alive, and it was awful of me to think all those lords and ladies sitting round that breakfast table and waiting for me to come back. So Frank took my wedding clothes and things and made a bundle of them, so that I should not be traced, and dropped them away somewhere where no one could find them. It's likely that we should have gone on to Paris tomorrow, but only that this good gentleman, Mr. Holmes, came round to us this evening. Though how he found us is more than I can think. He showed us very clearly and kindly that I was wrong and that Frank was right, and that we should be putting ourselves in the wrong if we were so secret. Then he offered us a chance of talking to Lord St. Simon alone. And so we came right away round to his rooms at once. Now, Robert, you've heard it all, and I'm very sorry if I've given you pain. I do hope that you will not think very meanly of me. Well, Lord St. Simon had by no means relaxed his rigid attitude. He'd listened with a frowning brow and compressed lip to this long narrative. Excuse me, he said, but this is not my custom to discuss my most intimate personal affairs in this public manner. Then won't you forgive me? You won't shake hands before I go? Oh, certainly, if it would give you any pleasure, he put out his hand and coldly grasped that which she extended to him. I'd hoped, suggested Holmes, that you would have joined us in a friendly supper. I think that there you ask a little too much, responded his lordship. I may be forced to acquiesce in these recent developments, but I can hardly be expected to make merry over them. I think that, with your permission, I will now wish you all a very good night." He included us all in a sweeping bow and stalked out of the room. "'Then I trust that you at least will honor me with your company,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'It is always a joy to meet an American, Mr. Moulton, for I'm one of those who believe the folly of a monarch and the blundering of a minister in far-gone years will not prevent our children from some day citizens of the same world country under a flag which shall be quartering of the Union Jack.' and the stars and stripes. 
Now, this case has been an interesting one, remarked Holmes when our visitors had left us, because it serves to show very clearly how simple the explanation may be of an affair which at first sight seems to be almost inexplainable. Nothing could be more natural than the sequence of events as narrated by this lady, and nothing stranger than the results when viewed, for instance, by Mr. Lestrade of Scotland Yard. And we will continue with the last bit of this. Yes, there is more, even though we've figured out what happened. Uh, I have a feeling Lestrade's going to have something to say about it, too. So we will uh, we'll finish up this chapter and this adventure in our next stream. Thanks so much. Wow, that was a long one. We did almost an hour tonight. Thank you for uh, sticking with us and liking and subscribing to our show. We really appreciate it. Don't forget our podcast, and don't forget patreon.com slash Sheldon. I'll see you again on Monday night. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. This is the Jay Sheldon Show. Good night, folks. Ha, ha, ha.